0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The U.S. Supreme Court's current session is winding down, giving a major victory today to President Trump— Lots of rulings in the books, with more likely, as usual, the docket was crowded, covering a broad spectrum of issues, including voting, discrimination, privacy, and more. We'll take a closer look with attorneys Bill Freivogel, journalism professor at SIU Carbondale. Barbara Smith is joining us for the first time. She is an attorney with the Brian Cave Law Firm, a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, and an adjunct professor of law at Washington University. Greg McGarrian is also a professor at the Washington University School of Law, and he clerked with former Supreme Court Justice Paul Stevens. Thank you all so much for being with us. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Not much to talk about today. <laughs> but, wow. What a busy uh, a busy week, uh, certainly, in the uh, legal world. Greg, let me start with you. Big
1: victory today for President Trump, uh, thanks to the Supreme Court. Yeah, so the court upheld the uh, final Iteration of the restriction uh, on entry to the country by people from the list of nations, predominantly Muslim nations. This was challenged uh, as a uh, an excess of presidential power, uh, and there was also an argument that because most of the countries on the list were majority Muslim countries, this violated the. Uh, Establishment Clause violated uh, religious liberty principles. And there are two big takeaways, I think, from the decision today. One is that the court majority – this is a 5-4 with the conservatives in the majority and the liberal justices in dissent. The majority strongly uh, uh, vindicated and reaffirmed presidential power over matters of – Uh, immigration, particularly in the context of national security. The president said we have to keep these people out because they're a national security threat. And the court majority largely said Mm -hmm. that's something that the president is fully within his authority to do. The other interesting takeaway that I think ties into some of the other cases this term has to do with the uh, religious liberty challenge. Uh, The argument was Trump was really trying to discriminate against against Muslims here, and the majority said, we don't see evidence of intent to do that. And there's an interesting strand running through some of the voting cases, the big First Amendment case today. A lot of these cases turn on analysis of the intent of governmental actors, and the court uh, is applying a very uh, fine-grained or, if you're more cynical, a very manipulable approach to analyzing intent that – Uh, has led all these cases to kind of come out in in sort of the same direction. So it's an an interesting analytic piece of what's going on in Uh, these
0: cases. Excuse me, Greg. Barbara, it's not a Muslim ban then. That's what the court has decided. Was it the fact that two other countries were added to this uh, in the third uh, iteration of this uh, of this proposal, did the trick on this?
2: Well, I certainly think it was. Uh, it was relevant that you had Venezuela and North Korea as part of the list of countries uh, from whom people were excluded. But more importantly, I think what the court said is that this is this may be an important and interesting public policy question, and it obviously gets. People's political feathers up, but as a matter of law, it's a pretty straightforward analysis. This is an area of constitutional and statutory law in which the president has broad authority, um, and the court affirmed that uh, that authority in the decision today.
0: Mm-hmm. Bill, um, what's your take on this? And has, the president has reacted, apparently. Uh,
3: yes, apparently he has uh, told reporters that it's a vindication. Um, you know, the, the court uh, upheld. Uh, the third version of the tra- travel ban um, the the uh, initial two had been uh, also thrown out by the by the lower courts um, it, it, part of the rationale that the chief justice gave uh, for upholding this version was uh, a number of the uh, improvements that were made between the first ban uh announced a few days after the inauguration and the uh, the third version of the ban which i guess was announced maybe last uh, September um you know he pointed out that uh um and, and the, the the chief justice simply said that the president has got broad authority here there's a rational reason uh to, for the president to uh, decide that there are certain countries that need to improve um, you know their investigation of people coming to the united states uh, and that that was uh, well within his powers um, you, you know it's interesting that there was a lot of discussion about the various tweets and and public statements the president made uh, the, the chief justice uh, went through those in in some detail. Uh, but then said you know it 's not up to us to decide whether this is good policy or not um, and uh, it's it 's just whether it 's within the president 's constitutional authority and it and it is here uh, it 's interesting, I thought that one of the justices uh, in the majority, justice Kennedy, uh, you know is often viewed as being sort of roughly in the middle of the court ideologically um said it was even more um that that just because the president has authority to do it doesn't mean that the that 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 actually gives more reason that the president should abide by his oath of office to defend the constitution and um, and, and suggested that statements about uh that reflected any kind of religious animus were wouldn't be appropriate
0: mm-hmm. Greg, does this mean that he can add other countries uh to this ban if he chose to do so? Just willy-nilly?
1: I don't know about willy-nilly, sure. but the court applied a very lenient standard of review to the president's decision to to do this, and, and so it certainly seems like he would have great latitude to make similar decisions about other countries. He has to provide some rationale, but the basic flavor of this opinion is if the president says there's a national security threat from people entering from country x or country y the president has authority to make that decision
0: just uh, unilaterally make that decision yeah Okay. Anything you want to add about this, uh, Barbara?
2: I would just say I think that uh, the court's decision is consistent with what the text of the INA itself says, uh, which, which does give the president that wide authority to determine whether or not people should be admitted to the country. And to the extent Congress disagrees with that decision, you know, it obviously has the ability to amend that law.
0: We uh, have more Supreme Court decisions to talk about, but I wanted to get to another big issue that uh, a lot of folks are discussing these days, and that is the due process question that has arisen with regard to the president's uh, feeling that he can just uh, send people who come into this country illegally right back home without any kind of court appearance. Your take on that? Barbara?
2: Uh, well in the in the context of the executive order on immigration i think you know the court went out of its way to say that constitutional rights don't attach to people when they when they are abroad before they come to the country so there wouldn't be a due process concern with that obviously a much different analysis in the context of crossing for example the southern border once you're already on us soil then the due process analysis is is different
0: so isn't it been established that someone who was in physically in this country Uh, is entitled to due process.
1: Yes. I mean, even even in a a much more fraught context, uh, one of the recent, you know, 10 years ago now, but context in which this arose was some of the enemy combatants' cases about whether uh, people who were being detained uh, in the U.S. or in Guantanamo had certain kinds Mm -hmm. of rights to judicial process. And, you know, that's a a lot more hot-button issue than ordinary immigration border control. But even there, the court, uh, stood up to the administration at that time and said, "No, you can't deny legal process to people when they're in the territorial jurisdiction of the United States." And there are certainly prior uh, immigration-related cases that establish the same thing. So, uh, I, the president is is not on solid ground to say that we can just eject people from the country without process and I have a feeling uh, that even this Supreme Court would, would probably resist that, that kind of move if he tried to implement it. Bill, so, are, go ahead.
0: Well, I was
3: just going to say, so if a person's in the United States, then the 14th Amendment, which has due process mm-hmm. in it, uh, and, and the 5th Amendment, which also has that promise, apply. Uh, it applies to persons, not just citizens. Uh, but but mm-hmm. still, you know, it's the process due. And, and there is not necessarily as much process due to a person stopped right at the border as there is for a person who has, you know, been resident mm-hmm. in, in the country. So there are these. There is a there is a law that uh, provides for expedited removal, uh, and um, uh, so you know that would be an authority the president could try to rely upon to remove. Uh, people without immigration hearings. Right.
0: Well, there are a lot of immigration attorneys down along the border with Texas. I imagine that somewhere along the line, they'll be taking this uh, this issue to court. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you agree? Okay, let's uh, let's move on. There is so much to talk about today, and and Bill, I'll come back to you with regard to what else
3: happened uh, in the Supreme Court today. They were busy. Yeah, they were busy. So the other case that they decided today uh, uh, was they decided that a California law. Was probably a violation of the First Amendment. uh, This was a law that required uh, pregnancy crisis centers, which are you know anti-abortion pregnancy uh, uh, counseling uh, organizations, required them to uh, post the availability of other kinds of uh, pregnancy-related services at uh, other uh, facilities around the state, and where those pregnancy crisis centers were not themselves licensed to disclose that they were not licensed uh, clinics, the Supreme Court said uh, that was probably an unconstitutional law because it 's content based and discriminates against a particular uh, 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 content the the The, the um, dissent. Uh, uh, by I believe it was justice breyer uh, said that well you know how 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 is the court going to distinguish this from a lot of uh, state laws thats that require particular statements to be given to women considering abortions um, and I think the court 's response to that was, well, those are in the form of informed consent kinds of situations. Uh, which is different than you know, the posting of particular statements uh, in the crisis center. Basically, the crisis centers were saying we're being forced to say something we don't you – know, that, that, that promotes abortion and we're against abortion. So we're being forced to say something we don't
0: believe. Any relevance here with regard to organizations like Planned Parenthood, for instance?
3: Do we connect any dots between this decision and organizations like that? I mean, I I suppose that a state – I mean, I suppose if if a state were to say – like Missouri were to say Planned Parenthood had to post the availability of pregnancy crisis centers, uh, that that would be presumably subject to the same kind of challenge.
1: Or there was another piece of the California law that – I think you mentioned this – that required uh, if these centers are providing – medical services or services in the nature of of medical care, and they weren't licensed as medical facilities. They had to post that as well. The court struck down or, or, or said that that was likely a First Amendment violation as well. I could imagine Planned Parenthood in the services they provide uh could be subject to some kind of similar state requirement saying we are not this we are not that it, the thing with the distinguishing the informed consent uh requirements the court in this case drew a a strong distinction between uh, regulation of doctors, clinicians, people who are actually providing medical care, which is, in the court's view, substantially okay in a lot of circumstances. But the court said this California law wasn't that. This California law was requiring the facility to make certain statements about itself and about other care opportunities, and that is that sort of speech is is more strongly protected by the First Amendment. So, if you're a doctor. The state can make you say certain things. If you are a facility that provides counseling, certain services, the court said you can't be made to say uh, what California wanted these, these facilities to say.
0: I have to take a break in a moment. But, Barbara, let me ask you, does this ruling today in Cal- on the California situation give us any hint as to where the Supreme Court stands on the overall issue of abortion?
2: Uh, I'm not sure we can read too much into this. I think that the the court viewed this as more of a compelled speech First Amendment case. You can't force a pro-life organization to convey Mm -hmm. a pro-choice message. Similarly, the inverse would be you couldn't force Planned Parenthood to say, for example, it's the policy of state X that life begins at conception. Um, That would be the kind of compelled speech analysis Mm -hmm. the court might run in a case like this, less so the sort of due process abortion rights analysis you'd see in other types of abortion cases.
0: Okay, well, we'll move on to something else when we continue. But we do have to take that break. We'll do it now. This is our legal roundtable day. Back in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
1: Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world class education within reach.
0: And welcome back as we continue our legal roundtable panel discussion. Okay, let's go to another one of those Supreme Court decisions of the last couple of days. Barbara, I'll start with you on this, and that is the um, sales tax on online purchases. Um, what a windfall for the states.
2: Certainly a windfall for the states. Uh, It it also imposes, I think, some burdens on Internet retailers who are now obligated to collect sales tax whenever they make a sale into a particular state. Uh, So important, I think, financial implications for states, regulatory burdens on uh, the providers of of goods and services over the Internet. Uh, At another level, I think this case is also interesting for what it tells us about particular justices' view of overturning prior decisions, um, which is important in this case in the tax context is obviously – important in other politically sensitive Mm -hmm. cases like the one we're awaiting potentially tomorrow in the government union fees case. Um, As I read the separate decisions of uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, they essentially said stare decisis to me is I disagree with the prior decision. So they would have almost no compunction in overturning uh, prior Supreme Court precedent. Other justices may take a more measured view of the stability of prior decisions.
0: Stare decisis was something that Chief Justice Roberts talked about a lot during his confirmation hearing.
2: Indeed, and Justice Gorsuch and others. It's an important consideration in the nomination and confirmation process because it can give you some insight into how a justice may view – what some members of the court considered to be established constitutional precedents and what other members of the court would be uh, excited to overturn at the drop of a hat.
0: Mm Greg, any thoughts on this particular ruling?
1: Well, actually, I just want to follow up on on something about the uh, Barbara's point about *Stare Decisis*. A- another interesting, you know, G- Justice Gorsuch is the newest justice, and we're looking for indications about sort of what kind of justice he's going to be going forward. And there have been a couple of settings that one, and and there was another one in the uh, Texas voting case where Justice Gorsuch, Gorsuch has. Gone along in a separate opinion with Justice Thomas on a fairly uh, controversial point. So in, in in the there's a voting rights decision out of Texas, and Justice Thomas wrote a separate opinion saying, "I don't even think the provision of the Voting Rights Act that we're arguing about here applies to redistricting decisions." And prior to Justice Gorsuch, nobody on the current court was with Justice Thomas on that mm-hmm. point. Justice Thomas is a guy who's not afraid to go out on his own limbs, and, and his view mm-hmm. of stara decisis is a big one. So it's I think interesting, nothing conclusive because it's early, but I think it's interesting to see Justice Gorsuch being willing and, and and wanting to go out on some of those limbs with Justice Thomas, whereas Justice Alito, the chief justice, have not gone in that direction. Is that a surprise? uh nothing surprises me anymore. I would say it's
2: a reflection of the diversity of opinion among the so-called conservatives in the court. There's really, the, you know, you can't really paint with a single brush when you're talking about the quote liberal or quote conservative block of the court because when it comes to arcane questions like stare decisis, which are mm-hmm. important when it comes to methods of judicial interpretation, the justices who are often called conservative or liberal don't agree. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, But, but right. another area in which that could be relevant is uh, in the area you raised before the break, uh, you know, we Ro- Ro- Roe versus Wade, the abortion case, because um, you know, at, at this point, I think one would think that the court was probably divided five to four on, on that if one assumes that Justice Gorsuch uh, is part of the four who would be ready to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, and um, uh, so the fact that he seems to be willing to uh, overturn precedent more easily. Uh, just like Justice Thomas would seem to ma- seem as uh, to indicate that he would be less uh, have less of a mountain to to, uh, to scale to you know overturn it. Of course, uh, the, the flip side of that is uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, seems to be uh, you know expressed more adherence to stare decisis, and so we don't we don't he has never written about what he thinks about overturning a precedent precedent like Roe v. Wade, so we don't uh, we don't know where he would be. Mm. Uh,
0: another issue that gets a lot of attention from the court recently and has most recently is the issue of gerrymandering. I'll stick with you, Bill, on this. Is the court ever ever going to decide a gerrymandering <laughs> case? <laughs> that is the drawing of legislative districts for those who don't know what gerrymandering is, and I can't believe many people don't understand it.
3: Yeah, I, w- <laughs> I wish I knew. I mean, they've been putting this off and putting it off You know, to find some sort of judicially manageable standard, if they're ever going to find a political uh, gerrymander that's unconstitutional, and they still haven't found it. They got rid of that Wisconsin case by basically on you know a a standing issue that the people who had brought the case didn't really have standing to challenge the statewide map. They only had standing to challenge their own district and. uh, so I don't know where if, – if they're going to get to that. Uh, I think they
1: – did they send back the North Carolina case? Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, just, just to put this in a little bit of, of, of a different context, there are two kinds of gerrymandering that the court has considered uh looked at. The more familiar kind is racial gerrymandering. And, and there are statutes and and constitutional principles from the Supreme Court's decisions that that bear on drawing electoral districts uh, in order to disadvantage members of a racial group. The partisan gerrymandering issue, which which you guys were just talking about, is is a different animal. It's the same basic concern is our legislatures drawing electoral districts Uh, for reasons that should be legally impermissible, but the court, Bill, as you're saying, has had a lot harder time figuring out what it wants to do, if anything, about gerrymanders that are based on partisan affiliation as opposed to gerrymanders that are based on racial identity. And it gets even messier at a conceptual level because – we have a racially polarized electorate that largely, where groups you know, largely track political affiliations. So there's some conceptual bleed between race and party, uh, but it's 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 really a mess. The racial gerrymandering uh, jurisprudence is uh, extant and substantial, but very complex and and thorny. And the partisan gerrymandering jurisprudence, as you're saying, is is almost. It's not even a gleam in anybody's eye at this point.
0: Barbara, when when a case is thrown back to the lower court, what exactly does that mean? Is that sort of an admonishment of some sort that the lower court didn't do its job or that it has to review it and maybe come up with a different conclusion? I don't think most people understand what that actually involves.
2: Sure. Well, it obviously depends on the particular opinion that the court issues when it sends the case back to the lower court. Often the court will say, we think you got the analysis wrong. And so lower court, in the first instance, we want you to rerun the legal analysis according to the factors that we think are constitutionally required or required by statute. Uh, In other cases, it may simply say you did it wrong, send the case back and leave it to the lower court to decide how to fix it. Um, But that that happens routinely with with cases before the court.
0: The lower court must not be real happy when that happens. Ah,
2: I guess it it depends. Um, I think you often see cases where lower courts express frustration with the state of Supreme Court precedent and invite the court to weigh in to to give it guidance on how the case should move forward. And then when when the court does that, obviously lower courts welcome that guidance because it enables them to more faithfully uh, follow the law. Of course, oftentimes the court takes cases where one federal court of appeals disagrees with another. So you have areas of the country where the law doesn't apply in the same way. And so sending the case back to make it consistent is an important uh, value uh, of the rule of law.
0: Uh, before we move on to some of the other issues, I, while the two of you are here, uh, Greg and uh, Barbara, um, you've both been there. You've been through this process. Give me some sense of what is going on right now. They've got one more day to go, another one more decision. Is added, it? They have two more decisions to, to reach. What's going on in the in the court
1: building right now, Greg? You've been there a lot more recently, so you should speak to this. <laughs> <laughs> I would
2: I would I would feel comfortable saying I think everyone is excited for summer vacation uh, <laughs> at this at this point in the term when the court's finalizing some of its most important decisions that have you know political and religious and other uh, implications based on how the court's decided and they've spent months debating what the right outcome mm-hmm. is as a matter of law. I think you know the justices are happy to see those cases get out the door and, and move on to vacations in Europe. Or in Justice Thomas's uh, case you know driving around the country and and, and visiting the, the American South uh, is
0: it generally a, colligial, a colligial, colligial, collegial <laughs> collegial collegial <laughs> <group>? collegial yes <laughs> thank you so much go ahead I, I, would, I would say it,
2: ha- it almost has to be um, because if you spend 30 years with the same eight colleagues um, it's important that you get along and so well you know well the court may disagree even disagree quite strongly about important question questions of constitutional law uh, at the end of the day, the justices, I think, have quite a warm relationship with one another. That doesn't doesn't mean they're not excited for the end of the term, but uh, but they but they do have a good relationship.
0: Greg, you want to add to
1: that? Just one thing that people might not be aware of: one really simple inside baseball thing. You know, all of these really contentious five four decisions tend to come down right at the end of the term, at the end of June. And if people are paying attention to that, they might wonder, you know, what's going on here? Is this the court trying to cultivate a flair for the dramatic or something? But it's a really mundane thing. These are opinions. These are uh, cases where uh, there's always a dissent. Uh, There are often multiple opinions. The majority opinion and the dissent are often uh, longer and more involved than in less contentious cases because there's more – Fighting and, and and more sort of ground to defend, so what 's happening here is these cases come down last because they take the longest to write, and it may be in a given case that the majority opinion was done two months ago, but you can 't hand down the decision until the dissenting opinion is done so that 's what 's going on with with the timing of these hot cases and what is the role of the clerks throughout all of this? The clerks uh, are usually in different ways with different justices, but the clerks are involved in the drafting of the opinions. The justices are driving the train for sure, but the clerks are, are doing some of the legwork. The justice, you know, may do an initial draft and then say to the clerk, fill in some sections. Here's what I want it to say. Uh, the justice may say to the clerk, here's what I want to say. Take a first crack at it. But the clerks have been doing a, a lot of writing and, and also have been involved in sort of interchambers communications. The justices don't, at least back in back in my day, the justices didn't always, you know, kind of walk down the hall and say, hey, how you doing? Often the clerks would sort of be emissaries to kind of talk about, hey, your boss is making this point in this opinion. Would she be comfortable doing this thing differently? So some of that has been going
2: on. And I think it's important to remember the other thing that the court is doing now is not just releasing opinions from the most recent term. It's also considering what cases to take mm-hmm. next term. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a process that goes on throughout <clears> the year. And, and doesn't end simply because you've wrapped up the prior term. So that that's work that continues.
0: Do the clerks get the summer off too? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, uh, tr- traditionally the clerks change over uh, oh, in August. June, July, and August. So a new a new crop would would come in to handle the next the next term's cases. So
3: yep. tomorrow we should get the one of the most important decisions, the one from uh, that, that originates out of Illinois, um, on whether or not government uh, employee unions. Uh, can have required uh, checkoffs to pay for bargaining, uh, the bargaining costs uh, of the of the unions, uh, and I think it's it's um, you never can be sure what the Supreme Court will do. It seemed to be on the verge of uh, saying no, you can't have that kind of mandatory checkoff. Uh, that's a violation of the First Amendment rights of the of the employee. Um, they seemed to be on the verge of that before uh, Justice Scalia died. Uh, and they, you know, if, if uh, Justice Gorsuch is where Justice Scalia was on that, they would seem to have the five votes to overturn a precedent. And we were talking earlier about overturning a precedent. They would be overturning a specific, um, you know, what, maybe 40-year-old or 50-year-old precedent uh, in order to say this violates uh, the First Amendment and, and, and government employee unions cannot have that kind of mandatory checkoff.
0: What could this mean to uh, Right to Work? Does it have any bearing at all on that? Same kind of issue with regard to the ability of, uh, of workers to,
3: not, uh, to pay
0: or not to pay union dues.
3: Right. Well, right to work in general applies to uh, um, unions in the private employment so, yeah, yeah. setting. Uh, so it's a, different, it's a different legal question.
2: There's also, I think, a distinction between uh, a state law that requires you to join a union or in a right-to-work state gives you the ability to opt out of joining a union and the question that's really squarely presented in this particular union case, which is if you're not a member of a government union, can the union still compel you to pay union dues? So that's the First Amendment question presented yeah. in, in the case that should okay. come out tomorrow. All right.
0: All right. Let's move along now to another uh, Supreme Court ruling. The uh, purging of the uh, voter rolls in Ohio is, a, uh, is an interesting case. It's ruled 5-4 that Ohio's method of removing names from its voter rolls does not violate federal law. People essentially have a couple of years if they haven't voted to, uh, to uh, prove that they are in, uh, eligible voters and that sort of thing. Ooh, how do you look at this? Who has it thought Okay, well,
1: I think it's a pretty important case on a practical level. There's a federal statute that says states may not uh, exclude people from the voting rolls based solely on the fact that that the voter misses an election or any number of election cycles. Uh, but federal law also allows states to uh, take measures to maintain accurate voter rolls. And what Ohio did was, was to sort of skirt the edge of that line, they would send out uh, uh, postcards to people who didn't vote, say return this postcard. And if the voter didn't return the postcard, uh, the state would then strike the the voter from the voting rolls. And the, the challengers to what Ohio was doing said this is a paper thin you know, sort of obfuscation and and Uh, doesn't really satisfy the federal law. So it was a statutory interpretation case, not a constitutional case. And uh, another 5-4, conservative-liberal split. And the majority, the conservative majority said, uh, reading the statute, Ohio is within the letter of the statute to do what they did. The center said this is a a very sort of flimsy pretext for essentially striking people who didn't vote. The reason all of this matters politically is because Democratic leaning, liberal leaning voters tend to be the ones who are more likely to miss election cycles, uh, just based on demographics and what we know about voting. So, the green light that the Supreme Court has given for Ohio's practice is one that a lot of other states, particularly states with Republican controlled legislatures, uh, are likely to avail themselves of because it's politically beneficial. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think it's, it's important to point out that the majority opinion went out of its way to say that it's not just a question under the Ohio statute that it upheld whether you return the voter card uh, that the state sends you in order to stay on the rolls, but you have to fail to return the voter card and also not vote in an election for four years. So there were several stop gaps before a voter was removed from the Ohio voter rolls, which, of course, reflects that there are competing public policy concerns here. One, we want to ensure that people are registered where they live and have the ability to access the polls and exercise the right to vote. But we also want to be sure that the rules that we have are accurate, which cuts down on voter fraud and ensures that the people who are listed on those polls are actual voters in that district. Um, and the court essentially said, based on what the federal statute requires, Ohio has, you know, has has lived up to that obligation. And if it's if that's an outcome that you don't like, this is the majority talking to the dissent. You should go back to Congress and revise the statute. So,
0: they, uh, look, ahead, looking
3: don't. at it uh, mm-hmm. from a, a, a broad, the liberal critique of this. Uh, what the Supreme Court has done here and in other voting cases is that uh, if you put this uh, this decision together with uh, what they have done with the Voting Rights Act in the in the 2010 decision finding parts of the Voting Rights Act uh, 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 to be unconstitutional, put it together with what they did in in the recent Texas um, uh, racial gerrymandering case, just of two you know a couple of days ago. Uh, where they said, you know, you basically have to give the state the benefit of the doubt. You can't presume that they're they've got a they got a they have a, an intent to discriminate uh, racially. Uh, put it together with what we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, for the Wisconsin case where they're st- still staying away from the the partisan uh, uh, you know the political gerrymandering cases. That all of these things tend to uh, result in fewer uh ap- African Americans and minorities voting because they are the persons who as 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 uh, greg said tend to to vote less often and uh tend maybe not to have a voter id that's another sort of legal strand that uh, is is resulting in fewer uh you know sort of voter suppression and that that's I mean we should all it should be a, it should really be a nonpartisan uh desire that the, the most Americans vote that, that more Americans vote that every American citizen should ever should vote mm-hmm. and uh you know everybody should be for that and so efforts that seem to be intended to uh, diminish that vote of particular groups
1: uh are yeah. unfortunate. The constitutional right to vote isn't a matter of public policy. It's a matter of deep constitutional value and, and elemental constitutional value because without uh, uh, enforced and, and realized voting rights, our democracy ultimately isn't legitimate. And we're seeing problems all across election law in various ways. Bill mentioning voter ID requirements, various ways that um, governments are trying to choose the electorates they want rather than answer to the electorates that, uh, that exist. And, and it's, a, it's a serious problem. And, and on the sort of broadest level, the current Supreme Court majority uh, says it's more concerned with states' rights than with uh, with problems uh, problems of voting discrimination. That's cutting across the gerrymandering cases as well as this Ohio
0: case. Barbara, isn't the whole voter fraud issue, though, something of a canard? I mean, everything we read seems to indicate that voter fraud is not a really big deal in this country.
2: Well, whether you think it's a big deal or not to yeah. me sounds like a public policy question that it's appropriate mm-hmm. for legislators to, to answer not federal courts. Yeah. Uh, and the federal government in the, in the Ohio case made very clear that states had the ability to ensure their voter rolls were accurate as long as they did so in a way that didn't discriminate against voters and decided that Ohio's The the decision Ohio made to comply with that law, you know, lived up to those standards. So I, you know, I understand that there are obviously political implications to these decisions, but I also think it's important to take a closer look at the the legal analysis. And when you're talking about cases like this, you're talking about issues of statutory construction. Uh, And and if you disagree with the outcome, you can fix those types of cases by going to Congress. Um, When you're talking about something like partisan gerrymandering and whether you have a constitutional (laughs) right to live in a district that's not gerrymandered along partisan lines, it's much harder for Congress to step in and correct uh, a constitutional decision if it thinks that the court gets that gets that wrong. So I might take a little more cautious view to the court finding that there's a new constitutional right not to live in a voting district um, that you allege is gerrymandered along partisan lines. That seems like a road that is fraught with peril to me. Yeah.
0: Uh, Got to take another break. Thank you for that. We'll uh Do that now and come back and continue our legal roundtable panel discussion. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back as we continue our Legal Roundtable panel discussion with Bill Freyville, Barbara Smith, and Greg McGarrian. Okay, a couple more SCOTUS things, Supreme Court things to discuss here, and then I want to get to some local issues. Uh, The cell phone records case. Who would like to take that? Rule that police typically need a search warrant before trying to track a person's past movements via their cell phone. Thoughts? Barbara, you want to start it?
2: So the question in this case is whether the government can ask third-party cell phone providers to provide it with records that would enable the government to know where you, as the owner of the cell phone, were uh, at certain times and on certain days. Uh, so the Fourth Amendment question was, I think, twofold. One, did, did the criminal defendant here, Mr. Carpenter, have the ability to raise a Fourth Amendment challenge in light of the fact that the cell phone provider turned over the records and he did not? So arguably, it wasn't his property, although the court decided that he could raise this. Challenge. Um, and then, secondly, it, it is the government required to get a warrant before it obtains this type of cell phone um, locational data? Uh, And and the majority opinion authored by Chief Justice Roberts, I think, kind of backs into that question by starting with the nature of cell phone location data, which the majority opinion um, states is fundamentally different than other types of data the government collects in other Fourth Amendment cases. Um, So it starts with the new technology and then backs into the Fourth Amendment analysis. And many of the dissenting opinions sort of start with the text and history of the Fourth Amendment and then apply it to the locational data. So I think that's really where the schism was in this case.
0: Robert sided with the liberal justices. Do we read anything into that, Greg?
1: It's an interesting issue in its political valences because, in a lot of privacy cases, uh, libertarians who identify conservative, uh, politically as more conservative are allied with uh, liberals who see this as a you know issue of whatever individual integrity or state power. And there's there's a lot of a lot of sort of political. Uh, uh, scrambling with an issue like this. Um, So I don't read it as a, a sort of major ideological case. I think Barbara might be right that there's more of a disagreement about methodology and mode of constitutional analysis. And we see this a lot in cases about technology, First Amendment law, which is the, the field that I do the most, spend the most time in. We, there's, there are sometimes cases that present similar problems. Uh, with an Internet free speech case, is this first and foremost an Internet case or is this first and foremost of – First Amendment case that we can sort of get to through uh, what we've learned in the pre-Internet era. And that's not an ideological question. That's a sort of analytic and cognitive question that the justices are sometimes all over the place about. I I mean, I think that uh, Chief Justice
3: uh, Roberts sees this. I think he thinks he, he really cares a lot about the issues of Fourth Amendment and, tech- and modern technology, I think he probably sees this as part of his legacy on the court. I mean, he uh, the, the Roberts Court has also, uh, you know, said in past cases that uh, you needed a search warrant uh, to use GPS to track a suspect, that you needed a search warrant in most cases uh, to see somebody's cell phone and start going going through the content of the cell phone and and now and now this um uh, uh this decision i mean i just think i think that if you if you read what chief justice roberts has written that he sees and i think he's totally right about this that that you know cell phones and the internet have entirely changed uh the situation we had 40 or 50 years ago um and and that you know now when you have a cell phone that can track all americans and where they are I mean w- w- when you have technology that enables all Americans to be tracked and all of their cell phone calls to be stored um are are to um you know are the are the uh, uh you know the cell phone tower used uh to to be uh, collected by the government that this is an entirely new situation in the 4th amendment uh and and he sees a very strong 4th amendment uh, protecting um, American citizens. I think it's probably going to be one of its biggest legacies.
2: And technology changes, but the c- text of the Constitution doesn't, and I think that's the fundamental disagreement between the majority and the dissent here.
0: We've said many times there's a lot of law yet to be written with regard yeah. to all of, this, uh, all of this stuff. Okay, let's move along now. The, uh, w- a couple of weeks ago we talked about this. I guess the ruling was made concerning that baker in Colorado who uh, refused to bake the cake for the LGBT couple... Uh, same sex marriage uh, now the uh, court has refused to hear a similar washington state florist case uh, what are the, what are the loose ends in these in these cases
1: the loose mm-hmm. ends the loose ends are a lot bigger than the <laughs> than, than the main the yeah. main string uh, There is an issue here that the court i think is going to have to decide ultimately about the relationship and conflict arguable conflict between Uh, claims of religious conscience uh, and states' policies of uh, requiring equal access to uh, public accommodations and and business offerings without regard to, among other things, sexual orientation. Uh, The court managed to get rid of the Baker case by invoking uh, a simpler and starker constitutional principle. The court said that when the uh, state imposed this requirement that 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 uh, legally barred the baker from denying service to the same-sex couple. The state was reflecting an animus against religion, and that's <clears throat> a big no-no. You can't make the governments can't make decisions out of religious animus or religious bias but there will be plenty of cases coming down the pike where that sort of evidence uh is not present or 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 available where the government makes a a decision and it's all about equal access to services there's no indication of animus against religion and when one of those cases comes up the court's gonna gonna have to confront the issue
0: Any other thoughts before we move? Okay, let's move on to uh, a local issue, the Jason Stockley case. He, of course, is the police officer who was acquitted of, uh, of murdering a uh, young St. Louis black man, Anthony Lamar Smith. He is suing the prosecutor and the uh, Metropolitan Police Department on this. Um, what are the arguments in this case, and if I can, because in the interest of time, if he wins this case, does this open the door for a flood of prosecution, of uh, uh, lawsuits against prosecutors?
3: If he were to win, it would. He won't win. It's a frivolous lawsuit. He claims that Jennifer Joyce uh, and, the, and the police officer sued, uh, lie, didn't present the judge, lied to the judge. Uh, but if you actually read his complaint, he basically is is, is complaining that she didn't bring up you know, his arguments for why he was justified in his use of force. It's, it's – uh, I think it's a ridiculous case.
1: It's
0: Greg and
3: Barbara.
1: bizarre that he's bringing it. It, it has – it sort of smacks of returning to the scene of the crime, but I can't know what's going on in his head.
0: You would think he'd want to go underground after uh, after all of this
1: At the- I think I would.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Barbara, do you have any thoughts?
2: It's a, it's a longstanding proposition that prosecutors have almost absolute immunity uh, for the cases they choose mm-hmm. to bring or not. And so, you know, right. as a legal matter, uh, whatever we think of his decision to bring the case, it's unlikely, I think, to succeed against the prosecutor.
0: Okay. There's another issue here that I want to get to. And, and Barbara, I think you have to kind of uh, recuse yourself from some of this. Yeah. We're going to talk about Governor Greitens, and your firm does some business with uh, former Governor Greitens, and y- you probably feel uncomfortable talking. We, about re- this.
2: We, we continue to represent the office of the governor, so I will choose not to weigh in on this. Uh, okay,
0: the office. Well, let's uh, go to what the headlines in the paper were saying today, that the uh, a complaint is going to be filed with the, S- the Ethics Commission by the uh, House Committee that has been investigating the former governor. Uh, wh- what does that mean? Where where does that go? And what does it mean for the former governor? Bill?
3: Well, I guess I guess I don't really know exactly where, where it goes. Um, I mean, I think the ethics commission uh, will, you know, will consider it. Could bring, and I guess could bring an ethics complaint against uh, a, a former public official. Um, so, I but, mean, but so what? I mean, he's a former <laughs> former official. Well, yeah, I think at this point, uh, I mean, the reason I am at least glad that uh, that Barnes is passing us on to the Ethics Commission is that I, I think it would have been unfortunate for uh, him to resign and everything to go away and for him to be able, for the for Greitens to be able to claim, look guys I never really did anything wrong uh, you know, this was just a conspiracy against me um, all I've ever even admitted to you know, in that part of the redacted uh, settlement with uh, uh, with Gardner, all I ever admitted to was that there was a submissible um, uh, a submissible case. I didn't ever admit to being guilty of anything, and so I, I, I would like—I would like to see on these various issues uh, involving the governor there for there to be, you know, sort of a final kind of uh, you know public accounting uh, that that will block any ability on his part to say, uh, you know, I really never did anything wrong.
1: I agree with that. But I think Don's so what question is a very practically important question. I mean, when you're talking about uh, consideration of these issues by political bodies and public commissions, uh, there's a lot less incentive to put in the time and effort to take that all the way to the bridge when the person we're talking about is no longer the governor.
0: A submissible case, though, sounds to me, the layman, almost like a confession, (laughs)
3: Well, it's not. I mean, he's just, I guess he's basically saying, okay, I'll concede maybe there was probable cause. Probable cause isn't enough to convict you of anything. So um, you got to have you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So he's not admitting to having done anything illegal.
0: Uh, we ought to also point out that the, uh, the House uh, committee uh, and, and others involved with that say that there were impeachable offenses uh, that they had discovered during the course of their investigation. But then again, you know, What's to impeach? He's no longer in that uh, job.
3: And they're saying they no longer have jurisdiction. It seems like the Republicans and Democrats on the committee both agree to that.
0: Less than two minutes left. I'm going to bring Barbara back into the conversation here with regard to uh, Governor Parson and the fact that he has appointed a lieutenant governor. Now, is this something that you can talk about I, I
2: probably should not i okay. apologize <laughs> okay
0: well i I apologize for sending it your way What do you think? Does he have the right or are people who claim the constitution doesn't allow him to do that Bill?
3: uh well it would it would uh it would i think it's a, an open question. I think there's a good argument to be made that the uh, the state statute that was passed saying that uh the that he couldn't a governor couldn't appoint a lieutenant governor uh uh, means that he can't. That he can't. But there's past precedent for a governor doing it. Um, uh, you know, Joe. I guess Joe Maxwell was 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 appointed, um, and there was a, a lieutenant governor uh, was appointed after Eagleton went off to be a senator. Um, yeah, I guess those both had been. They both had been elected in elections uh, uh, prior to that. So I think it's something. I think it's going to have to be decided in court. And I don't think it's a. There's a clear
1: answer one way or the other.
0: Greg, do you have any thoughts? We have about forty seconds. If you do,
1: I'm just going to echo Bill on this one. I'm in the same place.
0: Well, how how does it get resolved? I mean, what he's I mean, done it.
1: I think you need a judicial resolution. This this isn't something where the court can just sort of back off. Right, and
3: there's been a challenge filed there has to, been a to the appointment. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think a veteran. Uh, you know, I guess the lieutenant governor is one of his. Uh, duties is uh, Veterans Affairs a veteran is challenged uh, I think you know sort of okay. on behalf of the Democratic Party is challenged so that takes it that. to court so it then. takes it to court okay yeah. well
0: we'll leave it at that I want to thank you all for being with us uh, Barbara Smith thank you for being with us sorry you had to lose the last couple of minutes here but no thanks for having great me great to have you you'll have you back for sure Greg McGarry always wonderful to see you too thank you for your expertise thank you, you so much. Five The same goes for you too my friend thank you all Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.